Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. Morning, everyone. We are in the book of Ruth. We've started a series in the book of Ruth last week. I'm going to dive straight in because time has run away with us. It's all right this morning. Uh, and so we haven't got lots of time. So we might run a little bit over. So just to warn you on that, I've said it. Okay, the cat's out of the bag. I would say that the sermon would be shorter, but I don't think it's going to be. So we're going to run a little bit over. So, um, so Book of Ruth, uh, we, just a quick recap in terms of the story so that those of you who weren't here last week, or if you're not familiar with the story of Ruth, just so you've got a kind of sense in your head and it will make sense as we pick up on chapter 2 today. Um, we're introduced at the beginning um, to a man um, whose name is Elimelech, and he has got a wife called Naomi, two sons, Marlon and Chilion. And um, due to a famine, they, let, they leave Bethlehem in Judah and they move to Moab. Now, historically, Moab um, was a place, it, was, it, it, it butted up against the promised land, the land of Israel. And it was a land where if you, you can read about, um, I think, about 150 references to Moab in the Bible. And most of them are negative. Um, there's trouble with Moab. There's war with Moab. There's judgment on Moab. It's not, the, it's not like a, a friendly neighbor. I think friendly neighbors in those days were few and far between anyway. Um, but war was part of life. Um, but Moab was definitely not, um, not a place that was looked upon well in the eyes of the Israelites. Uh, during their stay in Moab... All three of the men die. Naomi's husband and her two sons die. She's left with two, two daughters-in-law. And she says, I'm, I, need to go, I need to go back uh, now. I've got nothing here. And, and I've heard that the, the, the famine is over in Judah. We're going to go back there and start my life there. And she releases her daughters-in-law to go back to where they came from. And um, she says, I'm too old to have any more sons that I could give to you in marriage, because in those days, that's, that's how it would work. It was called leveret marriage. And um, if, if, if the son died, then if one of the sons died, there was more than one, then the wife would be given to the son in order to continue uh, the line. That was, what, that was the main purpose. That was the idea. Um, Oprah, one of the, uh, one of the daughters-in-law says, okay. Well, initially, both of them say, no, we want to be with you. She says, no, you've got, I've got nothing. My life's been ruined. Don't follow me. And so she goes, uh, sorry, Orpah, and then um, Ruth says, no, I'm coming with you. Um, nothing you do is going to stop me. Your people are going to be my people, and your God is going to be my God. And so she doesn't just cling to Naomi. She actually also converts. She, she puts her faith and her trust in the God of Israel. It's a very uh, big moment. Tanika preached an excellent sermon on it last week. Please do listen to that if you haven't uh, so far. So that's the recap. Now let's read... Um, Chapter 2 of Ruth. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, said to her mother-in-law, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Let's do that, shall we? I'll be Boaz, and you guys be the reapers. Okay? The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? 
And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favour in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, although I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it, to her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Father, we thank you for this uh, story. Thank you for all that is in there. I want to ask, Lord, that you would especially help me in the preaching of this text to be helpful, to be wise, to be um, insightful, to know what to emphasize. And I want to pray, Lord, for all that are listening, that you would speak to them today. Help us to engage, Lord, with your word, with thoughtfulness, with humility, with soft hearts. In Jesus' name, and most of all, with faith. Amen. Amen. So we've got a fascinating uh, story here. Just a little bit of back, a few things on background, a few background points. Um, the first is about gleaning. What's this idea of gleaning? Well, if you look, um, for example, at um, Leviticus 19, that will give us an idea if you'd like to turn there. Um, and then we're going to turn to Deuteronomy 24. Just to give a little bit of a background there. Uh, Leviticus 19 verses 9 to 10 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, the traveller. I am the Lord your God. And then if we go to Deuteronomy 24, it's a similar kind of a 
command with a few bits added in. Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 to 22 says, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and the Lord your God may bless you, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. This is part of the mercy that was written into the laws of God. It's a really uh, compassionate, quite moving law, where even to the point where if you forget one of your sheaves, don't go back. Why? Because most likely someone will need it more than you. Remember those among you who are more needy than you. Remember those among you who are more vulnerable than you. Remember those among you who don't have what you have. It's that, it's that compassion that we see in the heart of God. And it's built into the laws of the land. And so Ruth, she's a sojourner in one sense. She's, a, she's from another country in that sense. She's a foreigner. She's a widow. And, and so that's why she goes to glean. Because there's no obvious other way of getting food to eat. We need to engage with the reality of their situation. They're in a very, very different, very difficult situation, Ruth and Naomi. Also to draw your attention to the sense, I don't know whether you picked up the sense of risk. Did you, I'm sure particularly many of the women would have picked up the sense of risk in the story. We see it comes through twice, very explicitly uh, at the end. Where Naomi says to Ruth, um, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Um, and also uh, earlier on, so I can't find exactly where, but we, Boaz gives a, a command for the, here we go, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? What's going on there? There's probably a couple of things. It could, it, 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 the, Ruth is written around the time of the judges. And the time of the judges in Israel was very lawless. We're told in Judges, uh, it, said, it repeats it twice in the book of Judges. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So it's a lawless vibe. People have just started doing whatever they want. Which puts certain people at more risk than others. Okay, Particularly women, often. And particularly widows, in this culture. So it's a very risky kind of scenario. We need to just recognize that the Bible isn't um, idealistic or romantic about the backdrop, the situation. The people of Israel at this point is not in, a, is not in good shape. It's a, it's a difficult place to be. The third, the third thing by way of introduction, which will probably take ages because it's so controversial, is patriarchy. You cannot I didn't really want to talk about patriarchy because it's so hot culturally. You think, oh gosh, don't really want to go there. But there's no real way of understanding the story and what's going on here without understanding patriarchy. So we're going to do it. We're going to dive in together and I'm very happy for plenty of discussions afterwards. But you see it in these phrases, whose young woman is this? My young women, my young men. Now notice this, again, it's really important that we, that we define what patriarchy is. Patriarchy doesn't mean that all the, all the men rule all the women. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that at the head of every household, there's a senior man. The father, it means, the, the word just means father rule. 
Okay? Patriarchy in terms of how the etymology works. It's father rule. So there's a household full of men and women, and the head of that household is the most senior man. That's essentially how it works. So you can see that Boaz has got my, my young women, my young men. There's a sense in which they are under his, under his paternal care. Now, for many in the, our wider culture today, patriarchy is synonymous with misogyny. It's basically, in, in the cultural narrative, being used more and more to essentially mean the same thing, that patriarchy is the oppression of women. Um, that's not quite true, and I want to just help us to unpack that. My main aim in unpacking this is to get us thinking as a church about such things. So, for example, the Bible outrightly condemns all forms of oppression. The Bible outrightly condemns all forms of oppression. The Bible does not condemn patriarchy. Therefore, patriarchy cannot simply equate to oppression. I'll say that again so you follow the logic. The Bible outrightly condemns all forms of oppression. The Bible does not condemn patriarchy. Therefore, patriarchy cannot simply equate to oppression. So let's just unpack this a bit, think about this a bit. I'm sure I've got all your attention now. Um, the kingdom of God is not a democracy. The kingdom of God is a theocracy. Okay? Democracy comes from two Greek words, people and power. Theocracy comes from two Greek words, God and power. So the kingdom that we are a part of as believers is not a democracy. We didn't put God on the throne, right? Many of us have been voting this week. That didn't happen, okay? He's on the throne because he is God and he has all the power. So hallelujah, he's good, but he has all power. Okay, as we were talking to the Leeds guys this week, God is completely unaccountable. Did you know that? Okay, he gives answer to no one for what he does, but he is perfectly good. Okay? And those two things together um, are both essential for understanding Christian worship. That he's utterly sovereign. It's a theocracy. The church is a patriarchy. What do I mean by that? Well, the church is the household of God, and he's the head of it. The father. Okay? The church is described as God's household, and he is the head of the church. It's the father's household. And he's given rule of the household to the son, one of whose titles is everlasting father. And so from that perspective, it's really important that we think about this really carefully so that we work out what does, what does the redemption of this idea look like. And then obviously there's plenty of things to talk about in terms of application and all of that. But it's really important that we understand that any human patriarchy will be flawed, of course. But the concept itself... The concept of father rule is not condemned biblically. Patriarchy on a human level can lead to the oppression of women. Here, interestingly, it leads to the protection of a woman. That's just what happens in the text. There's a vulnerability. She comes under his care. I'm not going to spoil how the story ends in the next two weeks. But that, that's, that's the dynamic through, through this setup. Here, it manifests as a protection for a vulnerable woman. Um, one of the, one of the um, most haunting uh, articles I read on the BBC website a couple of years ago, shortly after, what I, I don't know about you, but what I consider to be one of the most vile crimes I've ever, ever uh, read about, the, the um, kidnap and murder of Sarah Everard. Um, there was one of the most haunting articles on the BBC website where of a young woman and the title was I've realised no one will protect me. 
that was just awful. It's one of those ones you think, the, the, title, the title alone <laughs> says it. And around that time, we had such anger, understandable anger, grief, outrage. So many, so many layers and levels to that vile, vile thing that happened. And so many hashtags were trending. Reclaim the night and Sarah Everard hashtag and not all men and then not all men but all women and all of the, you know, this thing kicking off all around us. All I'm really asking today when raising this subject, because you can't understand the story of Ruth without grappling with patriarchy, is I want us as a church to learn how to think. Because I do think in our wider culture we've lost the art. I think everything is instantly polarised Everything is instantly emotion and outrage and um, sound bites. And we've lost the art of sitting down and really, really thinking about things. And I genu- I'm not being melodramatic, I hope, but I genuinely think that if as a church we don't learn to think about things really carefully and stop and pause and consider and listen and try to understand, I think that the, the winds of our secular culture are so strong we're just going to get blown away. We need to really appreciate. I think we've been in turmoil on this kind of stuff probably for the past 10 years. I think Jimmy Savile's death was a bit of a catalyst. Suddenly there's this exposure. All of this vile things come to the light of disgraceful, disgusting abuse. Um, either whether it was against children or men against women for the, for the most part. Just awful. So, so right that it came to the light. You could really see God's, God's hand on that. How often God's hand will not just work in the church, but will work in wider culture. Things get exposed. Things come out. So right that that happened. But it's also really important that we don't buy into the cultural narrative 100%. That we, we see what God is doing, then we try to work out what does a redemption of this look like? not just rejecting things out of hand. So this is a bit of a call for us as a church to really begin to engage, think about these kinds of things and grow in our discernment because otherwise what we'll end up doing is we'll end up just flip-flapping from one extreme thing to another, neither of which reflects the heart of God. Does that make sense? So I want to just talk about bring it up, not avoid it, just say, no, we've got to think about this and we've got to think about um, these kinds of things because um, otherwise we're going we're gonna to find ourselves... Um, not really knowing what we think about things. So, okay, now for the story. It's five past twelve. What actually happens in the story today? Don't panic. I won't be ages. But I want to draw your attention to what is a wonderful move by Ruth, a really decisive move, a bold move, a visionary move, a faith move. All right? Because she doesn't just say, I'm going to go and glean. She says, I'm going, to go and, I'm going to go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favour. It's a fascinating thing. She's rec- she recognises that she needs, her and Naomi need provision. They need, they need to be connected to a patriarch. That's what they need. For, in order for them not to die of starvation, in order for them not to whittle away to nothing, in order for the family line to continue. Something, this, is how, this is the only way it's going to happen. Okay, I need to find a man who's going to look upon me with favour. That's the reality of what's going on. Okay, that's what's happening. Now, just because in verse one it says Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man called Boaz, 
Right? And then verse 2 says, I'm going to go and find, um, uh, I'm going to go to the field of him in whose sight I should find favour. It kind of can read a little bit like she's saying, I'm going to go and find Boaz. It's clear that that's not the case. As the story develops, she happened to come into the field of Boaz. And then Naomi says, oh, who, where were you? I was in the field of Boaz. Boaz, wow, he's a relative. It wasn't that she went out to find Boaz. Now, you say, what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. She's not moving out to try to create, control a situation. She's not thinking, okay, how are we going to fix this? We're in trouble here. We're struggling. Okay, now what are we going to do? Who have we got? Who, get, get, who are the men? Okay. Who are the men that we're in some way related to, who have some kind of potential responsibility to redeem us from our situation? This whole kinsman redeemer thing Tanika spoke about last week. Who are they? And Naomi goes, well, here are the guys. Don't, you don't want him. Don't go in his field. He's crazy. He's, like, he's, he's handsome. He's a good guy. He's kind. You want, you know, it's not that. Okay? That's not it at all. It's, it's a move where she's saying, I, something needs to change. We need favor in order to be redeemed from our situation. I'm going to go out into the fields, which is a risky move. We've looked at that, haven't we? It's a risky scenario. I'm going to go out into the fields. She's a Moabite woman. Okay? She's fair game. This is risk. But, but she says, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find favor. You think, why, where's that confidence come from? Well, we're told, aren't we, earlier? She said to Naomi, your God's going to be my God. So she would have been learning about the God of Israel and his promises. His promises of provision. His promises of loving kindness. His promises of abundance. His promises of reward to those who faithfully follow him. She says, well, I'm, I'm in. I'm going. And so she just starts, she just starts reaping. And then there's this wonderful moment. She happens upon the field of Boaz. She doesn't know. He's not there. She's just gleaning. Suddenly he turns up, does this great greeting, and then he says, oh, hello. Who's, who does she belong to? She gets his attention. And then there's this beautiful interaction, this wonderful interaction. Have you, I mean, it's really, really tender. It's full of gentleness. It's full of hope. It's, it's full of kindness. I mean, she says to him, you've comforted me and spoken kindly to yourself. It's a beautiful love story. Again, I'm not going to spoil the, the ending. <laughs> Just did. I'm not going to. It's full of kindness, full of tenderness, full of warmth, full of protection, full of care. It's really, it's, it's really a beautiful thing to behold what's going on here. Why have I found favour in your eyes? She recognises. I'm going to go to the field and see, find favour. It's happened. It's happened. Why have I found favour? But look at his answer. And I want you to really see and understand this. His answer is this. All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. God has been arranging conversations behind the scene. Yeah? He's been arranging conversations behind the scene. How you left your father and mother and your native land came to a people you didn't know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. He says, I've heard all about you. I've heard all about you. And what I want to draw your attention to is this. When Ruth made that decision to cling to Naomi, when Ruth made that decision to follow, I, I, I will be, your people will be my people, even though they probably hate me. Your God will be my God. 
as far as she could tell, on a human level, it was going to bring her absolutely no advantage at all. There's no selfish ambition here. It's faithfulness. It's faithfulness. It's loyalty. It's love. It's service. Those attributes are godly attributes. Those attributes show that this is a woman of character. And God sees the decisions that we make in the private place. Did you know that? Did you know that? No one knew that. Did you know that? <laughs> it's a strange kind of... Yeah. This is extraordinary. God sees the decisions that we make in the private place. And then God, because he's all-powerful, has total freedom to orchestrate situations circumstances and conversations in order to bless us and favor us. Do you believe that? If you believe that, that will impact the decisions you make privately. You will, you will relax from stressing and manipulating and trying to engineer situations and trying to find your way in from a place of anxiety or stress or pressure because you know that God is the God who sees that's what Hagar called him, didn't she? Hagar, she's out there by herself back in Genesis. She's been cast out, but God sees her. And she, gives, she says, you are the God who sees. He sees what you think in your heart. He sees what you pray in your room when you're alone with him. He sees the cries of your heart. He sees the decisions you make for his glory. He sees the sacrifices you make for the good of others that God has brought into your life. He sees it all. He notices. And he, his heart and his power and his, his will and his purpose is to bless and reward you as you do that. Did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> it's important that we see these things because it impacts the decisions we make in life. It's when you walk out of here that the business starts, right? This afternoon, you, some of you will have decisions to make. This evening, tomorrow morning, most of us will have decisions to make. We've got things pending, all of us, where you're going to say, how am I going to conduct myself there? How am I going to talk in that conversation? How am I going to treat that person? If you're a believer, then your aim will be to do all of those things to his glory and for the good of those you're interacting with. Amen? He wants to honor you in that. And it might not be that you see the results of that overnight, but sometimes you have to be patient in order to see the outworking of God's purposes in your life. Which is why we spoke, remember, a few weeks ago about thinking in years, learning not to think in just weeks and months, but thinking think in years. That which a man sows, he will reap. It's the promise of God. And it's so important that we understand that. And then we can take heart from this story and see a woman who, in the most desperate and darkest moment, made godly decisions. And now we see the honouring of it. Jesus said, For what you pray in secret, your Father will reward you out in the open. What you give in secret, your Father will reward you out in the open. The Father loves to reward out in the open, but he calls us to invest in secret. And I want to call us as a church, let's be doing that. Live before the audience of one. It's so exciting when you make decisions that pretty much no one else knows about. And then you see God rewards you for that. It's amazing, isn't it? You go, that I know. And you know, you know in your, you know in your noggins, 
that is connected to that. Now that moment you go, that's, thank you Lord. And you know you didn't have to make it happen. Hallelujah. I was with a very sort of respected senior sort of prophet type person a few days ago in their 80s. And they'd been ministering all morning. And then poor things, they ended up having to be with me for a couple of hours. And I said, mate, look, I know you're really tired. We'll keep it short. He said, well, he said, I don't try and make things happen with ministry. I just go along, try to see what God's doing and get involved with that. So I don't really get tired. So refreshing to hear someone say that. So he's like, no, I'm fine. That's good. It's just, you're just confident God's at work. So you're looking for what God's doing rather than trying to make things happen. Hallelujah. And, but sometimes it can be our unbelief that God's not working. Or God's not going to show me what he's doing. If you swallow that lie, you end up stressing and trying to generate things, right? You don't need to. Hallelujah. We've got a father who knows us and cares about us. And I want to just say a quick word to it as I finish up now. For those of you who don't yet know the Lord, there's a whole different way of living. There's a whole different maths. Okay? There's a whole different way where essentially it's not built on human means, human equations, this, that and the other. It's built on a place of childlike trust where you put your life in his hands. You put your past in his hands. And trust him for forgiveness and restoration and all of that. And, and you put your present in his hands, all of the uncertainty that you've got, and your future in his hands. You say, Lord, I belong to you now. Just like Ruth did. He will bring you into a new way of operating. It's called living by faith. That way is open for you. Because of a man, the only man to have perfectly lived by faith, Jesus. There's only been one man who's lived by faith properly, fully, without sinning. And that's Jesus. And he lived on our behalf, lived for us, built up, if you like, an account of righteousness in his relationship with the Father, which he gives to us freely because he's so kind. And then took our debt in his body on the cross to to release us from judgment. And if you want to know the joy of this new way of living today, it basically involves you bringing your burden of sin and guilt and everything you've done wrong and laying it at the foot of the cross, trusting in Jesus. And then saying, Jesus, I want to follow you now. Jesus is fine. I've taken the cross for you. So you never have to worry about all of that. It's all all been dealt with. But here's a cross for you to pick up and walk with daily. Whereby you're going to learn how to say no to all those things that have brought you to dead ends. All those things that have not glorified him. And you can learn to live in the power of the Holy Spirit for his glory. It's a new life, it's a Christian life. It's radical, it's exciting, it's a gift, but it costs you everything. If you want to know about that, please come and see me. I'd love to chat with you and pray with you about that. And if you're here as a believer, but you recognise, I've been living more like the world, then how you describe living by faith, I'm not doing that. Get right with God. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've fallen for, I've, I've, not, I've been in unbelief. I've believed these things that you don't care or you're not involved. Or whatever, and I've started to try to make things happen. I lay that down. I lay that down, Lord. And I want to be like Ruth now. I want to begin to invest in secret and just learn, really learn how to trust you to work out your purposes in my life. Amen? Amen. Look at that. Not bad. Only three minutes late. Let me just pray for us. Lead us in prayer. And then um, 
Yeah, Lord, we just want to just want to pray for my brothers and sisters today. Lord, we know that those of us who are born again, Lord, we we hear about living by faith. Something in us goes, yeah, that's my inheritance. Yes, that's what I want to learn how to do more and more. And I want to pray, Lord, fuel on the fire. Fuel on the fire, Lord. I want to pray courage. I want to pray the faith that you've given, Lord, they would exercise. Put it into practice. Let that faith muscle grow. I want to pray mountains start to move. I want to pray, Lord God, things just start to connect in a different way of, of operating, different dynamic. Bless my brothers and sisters, Lord, as we all try and work out what it means to live with our eyes fixed on you. I pray in the name of Jesus for growing fruitfulness and prosperity in that, Lord. And I just lift up all those, Lord, who are here in this room, but they've actually not come into personal relationship with you yet. They've not, Lord, left their sins at the cross and embraced you as their Lord and Saviour. They've not understood yet, Lord, that you've done it. You've paid it all. The price, the, the, the work for our sins is done. I want to pray for revelation. Open the eyes of their hearts by your spirit. Let them see your finished work on the cross and cling to you in faith and find new life in you, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.